This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. State lawmakers are back in session tomorrow, and anything they pass must have the signature of our first guest, Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper. We speak regularly at the state capitol. Let's start this time with a proposal that both parties seem to support, asking voters to tax themselves to pay for transportation improvements. Remember that any new tax in Colorado has to have voter approval. CDOT has identified $9 billion in need over the next decade. Governor, welcome back to the program. Glad to be back. We spoke Monday to legislative leaders from both parties, and they say they're willing to do this, bring something to the ballot. Uh, That said, voters in Colorado have a long history of turning down requests for new money. What do you think would make November any different? There are a couple of key things. As I've gone around and listened to people around the state, uh, I think they want a program that's going to be transparent. They're going to know exactly what they're going to get. They want to be able to hold the state accountable to here's what you promised, here's what's going to get built. They want it to be bipartisan. In other words, it's not going to work if one party or the other is the only party supporting it. It has to be. The Senate's in Republican hands. Absolutely. And what have they told you about the need for this? So they've told you what they want of it. You don't have to go very far from the state capitol to, you know, encounter people that are living in gridlock trying to get to and from work every day. And it's not just in in Metro Denver. It's up and down the Front Range and even in parts of, of rural Colorado. Are there specific projects you'd want money to go to? We've been talking for several years about the priority of fixing I-25, right? Making sure that from Wyoming down to New Mexico, we don't suffer the, the traffic jams. I mean, you drive from Denver to Fort Collins at 1.30 in the afternoon most days, and it's bumper to bumper. Same thing from Denver down to Colorado Springs. We've outgrown our infrastructure, and you know, so far we've been unwilling to step up and, and make the investments, which if you look to the West, Utah, I mean, there's a, a state that's roughly half our size, And they are spending four times what we spend in terms of adding capacity every year. Do you think that this might be a solution to I-70 mountain traffic? Well, I think that's got to be part of it as well. It's an essential element of what attracts people to Colorado. Whether you're skiing or biking in the summer, right now it's such an unpleasant experience on a Friday afternoon or even on a Saturday morning to get up to the mountains. And then getting back on Sunday afternoon or or early Monday morning can be just as bad. Would you want to see something on the ballot that asks for $9 billion, sort of one fell swoop? Or do you think that you go to voters with a smaller number? I think you go to the voters for a smaller number. I am interested in looking at, you know, getting from the voters a, a much smaller number per year, but the freedom to bond against that. And let's put a limited time limit on it so it's not open-ended. People in Colorado have a resistance to open-ended tax measures. But let's go out there and get an annual revenue stream that allows us to deal with the most critical infrastructure shortages we have. I want to talk to you about building more highway capacity. So I think of my drive, which is down I-25 between Denver and the Tech Center. That got expanded a while back in a project called T-Rex. And for a hot minute, it made a difference. And now it just seems as bad and as intractable as it always was. There will be people listening who say you can't build highways to solve this problem. It's got to be about transit. It's got to be about alternative forms of transportation. What do you tell them about this potential package on the ballot? Well, I agree with them. Uh, If you look at the expansion of I-25 south of Denver, uh, it has light rail along it. 
but that light rail isn't fully built out yet. When people say, well, as you head south during rush hour, it's still too slow and, and the traffic is too constricted. Yeah, I, I would agree. We need to continue to look at how do we relieve some of that pressure. But the bottom line is it is a thousand times better than it would have been if we didn't have light rail and if we didn't have that extra lane. So what kinds of transit or, I don't know, support for people who bike or walk could there be in this package? Well, we're trying to connect bike trails and others. We already have a huge number of bike trails uh, in Metro Denver, but not all of them are connected so that people can use them as commuters. And the other side with the light rail, most people have 10 or 15 blocks to go from the station to where they work. Well, that's a actually relatively inexpensive part of the, of the equation to really find a solution for. So part of it is whether it's bike sharing or little uh, shuttles or you know, signing a contract with Uber or Yellow Cab. However we do this, if we, can, if we can solve that part of it, all of a sudden a lot more people start using light rail. Those transit users are getting out of the way of people that don't have the freedom not to have their car. I mean, it really does become a partnership. So addressing what's been called the last mile problem there. Many of your answers there are focused on the metro area. What's in this for rural Colorado? They'd have to say yes to this too, presumably. Well, well as I've already mentioned, that I-25 goes all the way from Fort Collins, north of Fort Collins, all the way down through Colorado Springs and down into Pueblo. I mean, the congestion is that entire length of, of I-25. And if you look at what's going on in Utah... Uh, they have roughly the same distance between Provo and Ogden, and they have six lanes the whole way, and for a large portion, they have eight lanes. Well, we only have eight lanes in a very small portion, and there are still large stretches where we were reduced to four lanes. So that affects everybody. Anything on the West Slope? Yeah, I think if you look at Durango uh, and even parts of Grand Junction, they have congestion at certain times. In rural parts of Colorado, I think their share of the money will be more likely used to bring some of their rural highways back up to a, a reasonable sense of, of maintenance. In other words, they've slipped behind over the last 10 or 20 years. And while they may not have as much traffic, most of the rural folks I talk to complain about potholes and road condition that affects you know, how often they get their, their wheels aligned and that kind of thing. So the question is how to raise more money for transportation. What is the mechanism? So there has been suggested a sales tax. Some have talked about uh, a tax per mile traveled. Another is raising the gas tax, uh, which is just not generating what it used to. Do you have a preferred measure? And as you've talked to lawmakers, because we know there have been discussions going on, do they seem to be gravitating towards one more than another? Well, you know, I've had discussions with both the President of the Senate, Kevin Grantham, and the Speaker of the House, Chrysantha Duran. I think there's a, a willingness to listen and try and figure out what is it that the people of Colorado want? I mean, municipalities generally frown on the state raising a, the sales tax because municipalities use this, their sales tax, their share of it, as a critical part of their revenue source. Uh, Income tax? I think that's possible. I think gas tax is possible. And I do th- I'm not ruling out sales tax. I'm just saying there are pros and cons with each one. You've not uh, come to a decision, it sounds like. Oh, no, not at all. And I think this is going to be a big part of the first month or two. And I, I think it's very encouraging that Speaker Duran and President Grantham are already engaged in discussions with each other, and with the governor's office. We're all working to try and figure out what is the right balance. I think that another big question is going to be whether this tax replaces another tax that is removed, or it is an entirely new tax. Republicans, for instance, have floated the idea that you might 
put in this tax and then remove the gas tax. Sure. Let's say if it were a sales tax. Again, I'm open to any of these options. In the end, the key is we have to make sure that there's strong public sentiment behind it and that the General Assembly is going to come around and support it strongly and not just, you know, referring the measure to the ballot, but when it's being discussed in their local districts, are, are the members of the General Assembly going to come out and support it and, you know, tell people, hey, we've got, we're in a real pickle. We don't have the infrastructure we need, and this is the best way to solve it. In previous sessions, you've pointed to another solution for transportation and education funding. It's something called the hospital provider fee. Uh, it's a reclassification of a fee. It has to do with its relationship with Tabor, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. This has, for Republicans, been a non-starter. Does your interest in a specific transportation tax mean that you're saying goodbye to the hospital provider fee? I wouldn't say that. I think that the hospital provider fee, if it were appropriately classified as a fee, which it clearly is, right? The present attorney general says it's a fee. Uh, John Southers, the, the previous attorney general, both Republicans, they both agree that, it's a, that it is a fee. The Senate president says this it's, is a non-starter. Well, that's okay. And I, I respect where he's coming from. Obviously, there's been a lot of pressure on him. And I, I don't know whether it's donors or his constituencies saying that. We've looked at the... It might be his beliefs. It might, it might be his beliefs. But I think it's always worth discussing. If anything, it's more incumbent upon me to listen harder to what his objections are. So the issue isn't uh, dead in the water, but it sounds like it's not going to be your major vehicle for funding transportation. Right. It, it certainly doesn't look like it's, you know, leaping into the wild blue yonder. I will say the highest ranking Democrat in the Senate, that's Senate Minority Leader Lucia Guzman, says she still wants to take that fee out from under Tabor to free up money. She's working on a bill to do it. A question about the state budget, aside from this possible transportation tax, your proposal is an operating budget of about $11 billion, a 4% increase, but $500 million less than what you say the state must spend. Some Republicans have suggested Medicaid spending could be cut. What are your thoughts about that? Well, everybody's got their own suggestion. Now, if you're going to cut Medicaid, the, the devil's in the details. Do you uh, see places in Medicaid that could be trimmed? Yeah, I think there are clearly some places that we will look at uh, aggressively, and I think we want to include both Republicans and Democrats to say, this is not in anyone's best interest to continue having medical inflation at a level that's far beyond the normal inflation that seems to affect every other part of our, uh, of our daily lives. I want to talk about what the Trump administration and the Republican Congress could mean for health care in Colorado. Efforts to dismantle Obamacare have begun in Washington. At the same time, there seems to be a lot of interest in getting insurance through the state's exchange. Open enrollment ends January 31st. And as of uh, about the end of December, signups were ahead 18% over last year. Well, we are going to do everything we can to preserve people's choices and to make sure that the success we've had in expanding coverage is maintained. Some will argue that their choices have dwindled under the ACA. And, and, and that's fair to say. And I think there, there certainly will be some modifications to uh, the Affordable Care Act that will hopefully restore some of those choices that were taken away. I think the key with Trump, A, first, I don't think most Coloradans want Congress to be in charge of their health care. When I've been around talking to people, I hear it again and again. As much as they were frustrated and hated the Affordable Care Act, they're very concerned about what Congress is going to make some kind of snap-shoot-from-the-hip decision. 
uh, and that they're going to end up in a worse place than they are now. So, so what kind of discussions are going on in your administration right now about this? Uh, we have a discussion every single day. Uh, we're looking at how to make sure that the exchange remains viable. A lot of that has to do with volume, the more volume that goes through it. We've talked about reaching out to some of our neighboring states that don't have exchanges, and they're less than enchanted with what they get from the federal exchanges. Maybe we should have a regional exchange, which would, again, lower cost, might be useful to everyone. A lot of the success of an insurance company is, is combining pools. To get to a larger pool generally helps the outcomes for everyone. So you talk about potentially creating a regional exchange. I want to talk about a federal audit of the exchange in Colorado as it exists today. Uh, The federal auditors recommended Colorado pay back almost $10 million, saying that money was either misspent or not correctly accounted for. What's the deal here? Well, I think the auditors were talking to the board, I think it was uh, just this week, uh, and I don't think there's any question of the money being misspent or in any way uh, malfeasance. I think the way that the money was accounted, in other words, the amount of paperwork, wasn't satisfactory. Some of this had to do with uh, proving that people deserved bonuses. Again, that paperwork of demonstrating, here's what the criteria were, here's why this person got, and these were small bonuses. These were not by any sense large. So you're saying this is a paperwork error? Yeah, I think it is largely a paperwork error. And I, you know, from what I understand, I'm not sure in the end, that $9.4 million or, or the full $9.4 million will have to be uh, recovered. And at least as I understand it, I think there's a, a legitimate chance that uh, the vast majority of that, that paperwork will be found to be, well, it's not perfect, but it's okay. Your annual address to the legislature, the State of the State speech, is Thursday. Give us another legislative priority you'll raise in that speech. Now, wait a second. If I give you my legislative priorities, who's going to come listen to the speech? Well, they'll all have listened to Colorado Matters. That's exactly my point. Uh So they won't come. They won't tune in their TV sets. Um, No preview? Well, you know the preview already. And and we've been quite clear, I think, that transportation infrastructure, all forms of infrastructure, broadband, education, uh, our workforce training, or how are we doing as good a job for those 70% of our children that are never going to get a four-year college degree? Are they getting a fair shot at a good life, you know, a job that leads to a better job that creates a career? Uh, we're going to focus on that stuff. So when I spoke with the Speaker of the House, Chrisanta Duran, and the Senate President, Kevin Grantham, on Monday, they raised another issue, and it's shorthanded as construction defects legislation, changes that, among other things, would make it harder for homeowners to sue builders. Supporters say it's so easy right now that builders can't afford to build, and so housing prices are going up. There aren't as many condos as would normally be available. Opponents, though, say changing these laws opens the door to shoddy construction and little recourse for the people who occupy it. Uh, First off, do you see construction defects even as related to affordable housing. I just want to explore your thinking there because that's not an assumption all all people make. Sure, and and I don't think the connection is as direct or impactful as some people say. But I think there is a a clear connection. But I refuse to believe that there's not a compromise that doesn't stimulate the construction of condominiums, but at the same time provide consumers with necessary protections. And do you think that this is the year to pass it? Because it really has been... Uh, tough in previous sessions. I think it was it was all but nailed out in the last couple of days, and we just couldn't get it over the finish line at the end of the session last year. Uh, I'll be very surprised if we don't get it this year. This would this would be one of those things that if if we don't find the right compromise, I will be 
excessively frustrated, <laughs> even more frustrated than I normally am. There's always a, a certain low-level kind of white noise of frustration in this job. You did an interview with Bloomberg News last month, and you were asked about President-elect Trump's involvement in some business issues, his effort to keep Carrier from moving jobs overseas, his Twitter complaints about Boeing's contract for Air Force One. You said Trump probably won't have time to keep doing that. But you went on to describe your own relationship with Colorado businesses, and here's what you said. Certainly in Colorado, I try to make sure that I am aware of all the larger companies, the large employers, and if they've got an issue or uh, a challenge, they've got my cell phone number, they'll call me, we try to work it out. And uh, I think in, in most cases, those companies are trying to get what's fair. They're not trying to hoodwink anyone or get out of paying their fair taxes. Give me an example of a company that has called you, you know, in that way, with an issue, and how it was resolved. Oh my gosh. I mean, when we had a tax issue, I, th- I can't remember, it was, I think it was last year, uh, but it was going to increase the way we tax personal property. I'd have to go back and find exactly what the tax was. But I'll bet I had 10 phone calls. And that's not just the big companies that have my cell phone, right? I am a uh, come from the world of small business. So there are lots of restaurant owners and, you know, small little manufacturing companies. Probably the dumbest thing I've done was give my cell phone to too many people. The, the one nice thing is I don't have to worry about any, you know, that I'm not hearing people's opinions. And, and it's from both sides. It's not just from... Uh, you know, the minimum wage. When the minimum wage came up, the big companies called, the small companies can't called, but also a bunch of friends. I have a couple of friends who work for supermarkets. They're part of organized labor, and they called telling me I better support it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the way it's supposed to work. You're, I, I like getting out on weekends, and I was in King Supers. I was over in uh, Jefferson County. This is probably Sunday at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and I had, had to have my picture taken with the assistant manager and a couple of the other employees in the King Supers. But then I had no less than 10 people come up and, you know, six or seven of them said, great job. Thank you for your public service. And then three or four people said, hey, but what about this? And how come you supported that? And can you explain this to me? You know, I'm one of those people, and maybe it's part of being dyslexic, but rather than reading something and thinking about it, I think more clearly when I'm having a discussion about a specific issue. Governor, thanks for being with us. Sure. Anytime. Democrat John Higginlooper is Colorado's governor. The state legislature will be back in session starting tomorrow. Hear from other powerful people under the dome at CPRnews.org. My conversation with the Republican Senate president and the Democratic Speaker of the House. After a break, state laws that it might just be time to ditch. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In Colorado, a car dealer can't sell you a car on Sunday. It's illegal. This so-called blue law has been on the books since the late 1950s. It's one of a handful of laws that some state officials say don't make sense anymore. The recommendation to get rid of them comes from something called COPPER, the Colorado Office of Policy, Research, and Regulatory Reform. Clunky name, straightforward mission, though, to tell lawmakers what rules should be revised or repealed. They will present a list of 25 this session. Jonah Goose is in charge of this realm. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Ryan. And as we mentioned, one of the recommendations is to sunset this 1957 prohibition on Sunday auto sales. Give us some background here. Why was the law enacted? 
Sure. Well, taking a step back, Ryan, Colorado is very fortunate to have the sunset sunrise process. And I think you've articulated the mission uh, fairly well, which is to say that uh, ultimately our job is to look at in terms of whether or not regulation is necessary for uh, the safety of the public and ensure the the public health and and general welfare. Uh, And if the regulation is ultimately warranted, uh, whether it is the least restrictive form of regulation consistent with the public interest. Hmm. In this case, the blue law was adopted in the 1950s uh, uh, with respect to the prohibition on the sale of vehicles on Sundays, part of a number of different blue laws that existed at the time, uh, the general acknowledgement by the General Assembly that Sunday was a day of rest and that perhaps certain commercial activities should be prohibited. Over the course of the last uh, 60 years, several of those laws have since been repealed. And really, the blue law, as far as uh, the prohibition on vehicle sales, is the last vestige uh, of that uh, that set of laws. You uh, couldn't buy alcohol on Sunday in Colorado for a long while. That was repealed. Correct. In 2008. Mm -hmm. So you looked at this and you said, it's about time to get rid of it. Why now? Why not last year? Why not next year? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, the sunset sunrise process has uh, been around for roughly 40 years. uh, And uh, this is not the first time that this recommendation has, in fact, been made by uh, the Office of Policy Research and Regulatory Reform about two decades ago when uh, the Motor Vehicle uh, Dealer Board and the regulations concerning the sale of vehicles was up for sunset. At that point, uh, the office made a similar recommendation. Uh, The legislature uh, chose to go a different route. However, uh, the job of this office in particular is to not make uh, popular recommendations, but ultimately to make recommendations that are uh, adherent to the statutory criteria that govern the office. That govern the office. So is this law reviewed every year or every five or 10 or something? So the legislature decides which laws will be subject to what we call sunset. uh, And it can be anywhere from every five years to every 11 years. It ultimately will depend on that particular law or regulatory program. Now, you said that doesn't mean that the recommendations you make are popular. And in fact, you will get pushback from uh, auto dealers on this who say, if we open another day, Sunday, we won't necessarily sell more vehicles, but we'll have to staff our dealerships an extra day. So the end result might be that cars get more expensive, that is to pay for the staff at those dealerships for an extra day. It is interesting here to have the state making a a legal recommendation that some people in Colorado might find objectionable. Well, and again, this is the, I think, the uniqueness of this process and to me crystallizes why it's so important that uh, we have a group, an office of objective, nonpartisan staff that take a look at a law and determine whether or not uh, they believe it is in the public interest to have it continue. Now, of course... What is the public interest, by the way, of having car dealerships open Sunday? Well, I think a couple of things. One, the legislature has determined in in adopting the sunset law to begin with that uh, the regulation should be the least restrictive consistent with the public interest. In this instance, in this instance, there really is no cogent explanation as to why this regulation protects the public uh, in terms of their safety or general welfare. Uh, to the point, the economic point that you raised, uh, the Federal Trade Commission nationally has looked at this issue. Uh, it, 34 other states uh, don't have uh, this law on the books. Many states have, have gotten rid of them uh, and have, in, in fact, concluded the opposite, that by increasing competition in terms of having sales on Sundays, uh, you could end up having the opposite effect and and having a positive impact on consumers in terms of pricing power. And so this office that monitors sunrise and sunsets of laws presents these recommendations ahead of session, and then you look to lawmakers to carry bills on these subjects. That's exactly right. 
Uh, besides repealing the auto sales blue law, the group also recommends regulating the people who serve legal papers. These are known as process servers, streamlining how landscape architects are regulated, and, quote, strengthening consumer protections from debt collectors. So it's not all about sunsetting laws and regulations. You might recommend new rules. Is that right? That's exactly right, Ryan. Sunset is more than simply recommending the repeal of a program. That is to say the sun setting on a particular program. It's also about improving programs, ensuring that the programs are operating in the public interest. Some of the examples you mentioned, uh, the quote unquote zombie debt, the Fair Debt Collections Practices Act. Our team evaluated that program, which is administered by the attorney general's office and found that there were some statutory gaps that the legislature should in fact fix by increasing the regulatory power of that program so that uh, consumers are protected from harassment from debt collection agencies that buy and then repackage and sell debt uh, 10 times over. I see. It's zombie debt because it sort of lived once and then was passed along and along and along and eats brains. No. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but, but has continued. The debt that uh, never dies. The debt that never dies. All right. How do we know that your office is free from influence? You know, I think of lobbyists who pressure lawmakers is coppers vulnerable to that. Well, a couple of things I would say. First and foremost, it is a citizen-centric process. That is to say that the analysts spend a year reviewing each of the programs that are slated for sunset review. You have uh, your own nonpartisan staff? Correct. And they consult with consumers, businesses, stakeholders, uh, any citizen in the state who is interested in uh, offering their advice, uh, their suggestions, or their concerns about a particular regulatory program. Uh, they are welcome to do so. Ultimately, um, as you said, some of the recommendations end up receiving receiving a healthy bit of pushback at the legislature. Uh, and that, I think, is indicative of the fact that at the end of the day, the analysts are very committed to a fidelity to the statutory criteria. Again, making sure that regulation uh, is only adopted when it's necessary to protect the general welfare of the public. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I will give you a dollar if you knew of the existence of the Colorado Office of Policy, Research and Regulatory Reform. I won't, actually, because <laughs> chances are, if there are people who knew that you existed, it's a public radio audience. But we're talking about this this office, Copper, as it's known, which has a charge of looking at laws and deciding whether they should be sunset or whether new laws should be created. And I am curious, how often does the legislature heed your recommendation? What's your batting average? <laughs> it depends on the year. Um, generally speaking, anywhere from 80 to 90 percent of our recommendations would be adopted. Again, 80 to uh, 90. A lot of the recommendations are non-controversial, good government recommendations, ways to improve various uh, obscure functions of state government. So, of course, there are a few uh, that uh, from time and again uh, may cause some greater consternation. But overall, in the aggregate, the recommendations are well-received. You do have criteria for making these decisions, and you've talked about the fact that the public safety, the public interest is served here, and that in some ways the least amount of restriction possible is is another mandate. Are there others that you take into consideration as you're reviewing a law? There are. So over the course of the last 40 years, the legislature has enhanced the statutory criteria uh, that, that guide our inquiry uh, by way of an example. Uh, does, that, does that mean they've actually placed more restrictions on you? Well, they've placed additional criteria that we should consider to okay. make sure that we're looking at the programs holistically uh, and that our recommendations are, are comprehensive in scope. So like what? Uh, everything from uh, more recently evaluating whether or not disqualifications based on one's criminal history uh, should be in place for a licensure or occupation 
Educational Professional Regulatory Program. Uh, that's mm. a provision that was added uh, just in the last several years, which now requires the office to take a look at that every time an occupational program is up for sunset. And, and generally, where have you landed? Well, again, it depends on the program. It depends okay. on the uniqueness right, of that I, I, Right. I suppose it, it, it differs if you're a bus driver or if you're... A dental assistant or something. Uh, exactly. And I would say, to your point about process servers earlier, the sunrise component of this um, process is a fascinating one and one that many states don't have. It's essentially a citizen-initiated process whereby anyone in the state, if they believe that a particular occupation or profession should be regulated, say radio broadcasters, they can, uh, oh su- <laughs> they can submit an application to our office uh, and we'll spend a year reviewing that, engaging stakeholders, and ultimately issuing a recommendation to the General Assembly about whether that profession should be regulated. And this year, um, by by way of example, we ultimately considered a few different proposed professions and rejected licensure in some and recommended licensure in others, process servers being uh, a good example. It's funny. I remember when I started out in radio, I think I had to have a license, a broadcast license. That's no longer the case. But uh, do you have a, a, a sponsor yet for the blue law? For the Sunday auto sales, do you know? Uh, we do not. So the, okay. each of these will will be given sponsors after they are heard in committee uh, anywhere from as early as this week to next week. And uh, let's be clear that these are not uncontroversial in some cases, and that applies to the question of Sunday auto sales. Joe, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Joe Nagus, he's executive director of Colorado's Department of Regulatory Agencies, known as DORA, and it houses this office, Copper. It reviews laws and determines if they're ripe for repeal or modification. There's a link to their list of 25 recommendations overall at cprnews.org. Up next, what I hope is a horrific interview. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When he writes horror scenes, novelist Stephen Graham Jones says he'll often freak himself out. He finds himself locking his doors or sleeping with the lights on. And that ability to scare yourself, he says, is an important skill to have as a horror writer. It's one of the things he's teaching in a new advanced horror fiction course at CU Boulder. Jones joins us from where else? The Stanley Hotel in Estes Park. It's the inspiration, of course, for Stephen King's novel, The Shining. The class is currently in residence there. And uh, Stephen, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I understand that you join us from a storied room at the Stanley, room 217. Tell us about it. Oh, it's great. It's a nice room. Got a picture of Stephen King here on the dresser. It's Yeah, it's properly scary. I think that Stephen King stayed there. Is that right? Yes, I believe so. Okay. And is it also true that there might have been a death in that room, or is that pure rumor? I don't know the, the truth or, or falsity of it, but you always hear that story, yeah. And what is that story? That a maid suffered an explosion in here, I believe. A maid uh, perhaps died in that room. What do you hope students get out of being at the Stanley? Is this part of the course? It's a wonderful setting for horror. It's one of our best American settings for horror. And I hope that they get creeped out and they find a way to funnel that fear onto the page. I am being corrected that the maid was electrocuted but did not die. Uh, in the interest. That's probably that's probably the truth, yeah. yeah of, of there's, ver- there's versions where she dies and falls through the floor or something, yeah. Setting the record straight. Is it giving you any ideas for scary stories? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, there's lot, they, they, they have the decor here such that you think of scary stuff while you're walking around. 
Any plot lines, perhaps, coming together? Yes, definitely there is one. Want to tell us about it? Uh, better not give it away. Okay. Yet. I'll write it down for <laughs> uh, It seems like at the heart of horror fiction is scaring the reader, and apparently the writer as well sometimes. Uh, what then makes something written on the page scary? What are some of the qualities of good horror writing? Some of the qualities, the first quality that often gets neglected is we need characters that we care about, which, you know, talking to Stephen King, that's what he is really good at. That's what he's brought to horror. If we care about the danger these characters are in, then the tension and the suspense is amped up tremendously. Another important component of horror is revulsion, I think, be it um, a gross-out or be it moral revulsion, something to launch us into a horror space. And Another component that people often neglect is humor. Humor can act as a pressure release valve on the horror. It lets us reset and then escalate again and reset and escalate again. Okay, so caring about either the character or the storyline, that aspect of revulsion and then humor. Uh, To revulsion, you say that that can be gore, but it doesn't have to be gore. Correct, it doesn't have to be. Oftentimes, if you you see a, a mother in a story neglecting her baby, not physically, but by abandonment or ignoring or something, we're going to feel that sense of moral revulsion. And that can often be more effective than seeing something really visceral. Huh. Yeah, one can be horrified even if there's not blood spilling. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You can always wipe the blood away. You can't always wipe away moral revulsion. Suspense appears to be an important element in horror as well. And I'd love to have you read an excerpt. This is from the opening scene of a short story you wrote called Night Cyclist. And uh, it's set in Boulder, right? It is, yeah. A bicyclist in Boulder. Okay. Read this excerpt for us. Okay. Here goes. The whole year, there'd been a battle going on in the opinion pages of the newspaper. Motorists were bullying bikers. Bikers were kicking dents in defenders and doors. Nobody had been hurt too bad yet, but it was coming. One of us was going to get nudged a bit too hard by a bumper, nudged hard enough hard enough to get pulled under the car, and the motorist was going to walk for it like they always do. And then cyclists were going to be riding side by side from one ditch to the other, stopping traffic for miles. It had happened before, and it was happening again. Even up in the mountains. Apparently, this just going from what I read as I stick to asphalt and concrete, The hikers had been sabotaging the trail against mountain bikers. Deadfalls, rocks, the occasional spike. Helmets or no, riders were getting hurt. And now it had come to town. For five nights in a row, there'd been driftwood from the creek dragged up onto the trail. It was then I'd relented, finally started running a headlight. And the headlight was how I saw them, the bodies. Two guys, young, floating in the shallows where the creek turns west. On the shore was a large piece of driftwood they'd been trying to dislodge to drag up across the trail. It was too much for two people, but they were the only ones there. One of them was floating face down in the water. The other was on his back. His throat was gone. No blood was seeping from it. Two bodies discovered, and for one, his throat was gone, you write. No blood was seeping from it. I love that in this story you use the tension between motorists and cyclists, which is a real source of tension in Colorado communities. It definitely is, yeah. And I've people I know who go up the mountain on their mountain bikes, they tell me that um, they often find the trails up there sabotaged. Yeah. And then you imagine, what would happen if it got positively homicidal? 
right. Um, I understand that to build suspense, as you're doing there, you first need dread and terror. And you make a distinction between dread and terror. What's the difference? The difference in dread and terror, dread is sitting in a room on a chair, in a chair, say, waiting for a knock to come on the door. You don't know you, you don't know when it's going to come. You don't know how loud it's going to be. You're just you're suffering a lot of anxiety waiting for that to happen. Terror is when you hear that knock and you rise and you open the door and you see who's come to call. That's the that's the terror. That's kind of the jump scare and that that's a spike into you. But dread lasts a really long time. Terror is really flat flash a flash. Right. And so you have to think about the ratio of dread to terror, I suppose, as a writer. You want more dread than terror, because if it's just constant terror, the reader, what, is just exhausted? Yeah, they get exhausted. They get desensitized to it. They they start anticipating anticipating that, oh, there's going to be something in this closet as well. That's why if a character is going down a hall looking for someone and there's three closets, you don't have something scary in every closet. The first closet is empty, the second closet is empty, and you keep going like that, and the dread builds higher and higher. Right, because the two empty closets are the dread, and then the terror yeah. comes in the third door. Exactly. Yeah. And and it's the writer's job to make what's in that third closet be more than the reader could have come up with him or her own self. We The writer has to go further than the reader could have gone. That is the element of surprise, truly a new experience. That is, and that's what brings the horror, yeah. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with novelist Stephen Graham Jones. He is teaching a new advanced horror fiction course at CU Boulder. We caught wind of it and thought we might get a little bit of an introduction ourselves on the air. Currently, he and his students are at the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, perfectly creepy surroundings for part of a residency associated with the course. I wonder, and, and maybe I associate this more with horror films than written word, Stephen, but you know when a character makes a really dumb decision and you're thinking, really, you're walking towards the 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 chainsaw massacre dude why are you walking toward run away um inherent in horror do you have to have dumb characters who make stupid decisions you know really in all storytelling you have characters making poor decisions the trick as a writer either of um non-horror or of horror is that the reader has to believe that those decisions are the best decisions in the moment and you're right horror on the screen doesn't always have access to the interiority that could explain to us why this woman is running up the stairs towards the killer novels have a little bit of advantage there because we have that interiority and we might know that that woman is running up the stairs because her baby is in the far room at the end of the hall and then it makes perfect sense that she has to run what looks like to this killer Mm. but but yeah bad decisions are built into fiction it's the writer's job to make those bad decisions make sense without bad decisions there's no stories there's just happy things that happen and stories aren't about happy things Oh, that's fascinating. So the next time I watch a horror flick and I think the character is making a dumb decision, I should I should pause and I should be sympathetic and think, who knows why they're running towards the killer? Yeah, Maybe there's something else exactly. going yeah, on. And, there. That, and that, that empathy, that's, that's the power. That's what fiction gifts to the readers is that empathy, that ability to step into somebody else's point of view and imagine what the world looks like from there. Do you see horror as a vehicle for doling out punishment? That is to say, the character who dies is the one with moral sins, or 
uh, the one who survives is the is the better character. That that's often the case, and really, there's two different types of horror. There's um, horror that subscribes to a model of closed justice, and there's horror that subscribes to a model of open justice. And closed justice is, you know, that every summer a massacre happens at the old abandoned camp by the lake, yet you go there anyways. What you're doing when you go there is you're consciously, voluntarily stepping into the cycle of horror. You're placing yourself in danger. And so in a sense, you deserve what you get in that horror story. Whereas a possession story, say, you might just be walking down the street, whistling a tune, and suddenly a demon strikes out of nowhere and inhabits you because of nothing you've done. You didn't have any moral lapse. You didn't read a book you shouldn't have read or anything. That's an open cycle of justice because it puts us all. It, we're all in that victim pool because we're all walking down the street whistling a tune. That's that's a whole lot scarier, I think, than kids asking for it at the old campground. Right. The scarier part of the latter is that it's truly random. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. The randomness is terrifying to us. When you are writing a horror story, how do you know when it's just right? When it's scaring me, when when I when I feel like should I actually send this out in the world or should I put a different name on it? That's when I know that I'm broaching into dark territory and I'm actually engaging horror as I should, which is my job as a horror writer. What do you mean take your name off of it? In other words, it's so challenging that you think, do I, do I want my reputation associated with it? Exactly. And you know, when my, when my children were younger, this was a big issue because parents had to come over and leave their kids with my kids to play. And if they knew I had written this terrible work with bad things happening in it, they might want to stand around at the door and talk for a while and watch their kid, you know? And the the truth is, as Stephen King says, I believe horror writers are some of the healthiest lot among us because we give our nightmares away, you know? But nevertheless, (laughs) people people assume that if we've got that imaginative impulse to come up with this stuff, then that must um, infuse every part of our day, you know? That is novelist Stephen Graham Jones, professor of English at CU Boulder. His new course is called Advanced Horror Writing. He and his students are in residence at the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park. CU says it expects to offer this class in the future as well. You can find a list of Jones' 10 favorite short horror stories at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's a Colorado painter you should know about. His name is Vance Kirkland. He died in 1981, and the studio and work he left behind eventually became Denver's Kirkland Museum. CPR's arts reporter Corey Jones joined Mike Lamp, who asked Corey why people are talking about Vance Kirkland as we start the new year. Well, it's a big year for the Kirkland Museum because it has a new home that opens this fall. As for Vance Kirkland, you know, he's a big deal locally. To start, he founded the University of Denver's art program in 1929. He later started his own art school, so he does have an academic streak. And what would you say kind of defined Vance Kirkland artistically? You know, typically, Mike, artists get really good at one thing and stick to that, but not Vance Kirkland. Uh, He actually went through five distinct phases of work the last eight 
18 years of his life, he focused on these dot paintings. He'd suspend himself above his canvases and use dowels to create these series of dots that kind of look like colorful galaxies. And uh, now we are talking about Vance Kirkland because the Kirkland Museum is relocating. What's going on there? So museum officials decided to actually move Kirkland's old brick studio and attach it to a new facility. A spokesperson told me they felt the museum could not exist uh, without this studio, which he used for nearly five decades. Uh, We're talking a 150-ton building, and this November I saw firsthand how challenging it was to move this studio more than 10 blocks across Denver. The horn blast is to let everybody know to stay all clear and that we're moving the structure. Hi, I'm Bill Mascarinas, and I'm the project manager for the new Kirkland Museum. We've got a 105-year-old brick building up on uh, beams and joists, and they're on eight sets of wheels that articulate to turn the building in the right position in order to drive it down the street. It'll be going between one to three miles an hour. It'll be going very slow, and the building will tell us how fast we can go. Normal construction is organized chaos. This is off the charts. Hey, everybody, we're going to need to move back. Hi, my name is Rebecca Spazzato. I've been a resident of Capitol Hill for 10 years, and I was actually on my way to church at 1030 when I saw that there was some construction event and I asked what was happening and they said they're moving the Kirkland Museum. I've been on this planet 38 years and I've never seen a building on wheels and so that's what's keeping me here. It's like I may live another 30 years and not see this again. (laughs) Oh my god! It's rocking! (laughs) Look at that! can't get up on that. They have to go up over. Are they shimming it? Yeah, it looks like they're shimming the foundation with extra wood. I think it just has to do with the fact that the foundation is starting to crumble there on the right. Hi, my name is Ryan Elmendorf. I'm out here watching the Kirkland Museum get moved. I'm here with my wife, Valerie, who runs Rule Gallery. So we had to come out and say hi. So one of the set of four-wheeled rolling jacks under it has gone three-wheel motion, and one wheel is off the ground. So they're trying to figure out exactly how to get that back sorted out, and it looks really sketchy. We want everyone to the next block. All the way across the street, please. Just slow it down a little bit. Just some of the sounds of a 105-year-old building on the move in Denver. CPR's Corey Jones captured those sounds, and he's here to talk about what all this means for the newly relocated Kirkland Museum. So, Corey, what is the latest with Vance Kirkland Studio? Well, the move took more than 12 hours that day, but aside from losing some bricks, uh, I mean, it was a success. The building is now at 12th Avenue and Bannock Street near the Denver Art Museum. The studio will be part of a new facility that has more space to display three different collections, and Kirkland officials hope that this spot brings the museum more exposure. Now, Vance Kirkland is already uh, well-known in Colorado. How well-known is he outside of the state? So I took this question to Rick Brattell. He founded the Institute of Art History at the University of Texas at Dallas. Brattell says when you compare artists from the 20th century, including Kirkland's, one way to gauge their importance is to look at the collection at the Museum of Modern Art. Kirkland has no role in the Museum of Modern Art. When you go through its galleries in New York, you don't see his work. But Brattell says the fact that the Kirkland Museum has kept much of his art together could benefit Vance Kirkland's legacy. So Brattell imagines there may be a day when the Museum of Modern Art does indeed have a piece by Vance Kirkland. That's because Brattell thinks the new museum, which again opens this fall, could raise the artist's profile. 
That is CPR's arts reporter Corey Jones speaking with Mike Lamp. You can see photos of the Kirkland Studio Move at CPRnews.org. That's Colorado Matters for today. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and connect with us on Facebook, CPR News. Colorado Matters is also a podcast. Subscribe by clicking Colorado Matters at the top of CPRnews.org and then subscribe to podcast in the audio player. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Public Radio.